Good morning, church. You can turn in your Bibles to the first letter to the Thessalonian church, chapter 4. And while you turn there, my name's Josh Miller. I'm a pastor here I'm over our college ministry, campus outreach at Southeastern. Woohoo. And I also help out with the music team. And so this timer's started. Okay. So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 9 through 12. And I want to ask the same question that Mike asked, which is this, what is a Christian? If you were to put a Christian under a microsco- microscope, so to speak, what would be the main ingredients of the tissue? I heard love. That's partly right. But faith and love, I would say, are the core ingredients of every Christian. You cut any tissue, any organ, a slice of bone, if you will, you're going to see faith and love. These are the building blocks, the DNA of a Christian. Calvin said about the two, that faith in God and love for man, which together comprise the sum total of godliness. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, He says that love is the crowning grace in heaven, but faith is the conquering grace here on earth. This is what we need to get through our daily lives. Both of them come from God. They're fruits of his spirit. Uh, They are given to us by the spirit of God. And without both of them visible in your life and growing regularly in your life, then you cannot call yourself a Christian. This is what the Bible teaches there's a plant called the Wellwitchia plant, and it's, there's a picture on the screen. It's labeled the plant that cannot die. Scientists are studying it, using it to unlock the secrets of its genome to help other plants live longer, and maybe us too, I don't know. But this plant lives in the South African desert where it's a very arid climate. It gets less than two inches of rain a year, and they're massive. This This plant is probably four feet tall, even though it doesn't look like it because of the perspective. But what's crazy is how old they get. Some of the plants in the desert are thought to be 3,000 years old. One single plant, 3,000 years old, been around since David sat on his throne. Now, the biologist who found it, his name was Frederick Wellwich, so he named it after himself. But he said to when he found it, he knelt down on the burning soil and wouldn't even touch the plant. He basically worshiped this plant because he was shocked that it would grow and to become so massive in such an inhospitable place. So they put it under a microscope to find out the secrets to its longevity and its resiliency. You don't want to know what it is? It's called DNA methylation. Yeah, I don't know what that is either. But basically what it is is selective attention. The plant only decides to spend its energy and its attention on growing two leaves at a time. Well, two leaves throughout its whole life. This plant, it only has two leaves. You just, what you're seeing is kind of like our hair when it gets long, it has split ends. The reason that it, that happens is because it grows not from the tips of the leaves like most plants, but from the base and from the core. The scientist says, This process, DNA methylation, along with other selective forces, drastically pairs down the size and energetic maintenance cost of Wellwitchia's duplicated library of DNA. In other words, it gives it a very efficient and low-cost genome. So the plant, it grows to be pretty ugly, but it lives. 
And it lives, and it lives because it focuses on two things, two leaves. And so, Christian, the key to your longevity and to your resiliency is these two leaves, faith and love, produced in you by the Spirit of God. That's really the thrust of the text today we're going to see in 1 Thessalonians. If you look back at chapter 1, he remembers them for their work of faith and their labor of love. In chapter 3, verse 6, Timothy comes back with the report of how the church is doing because Paul had to leave. And he says, Timothy has brought us the good news. It's kind of a play on words here using the word for gospel of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly. In 310, he says it again. He says, we pray most earnestly that we may see you face to face to supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul wants to build them up more. He wants to basically jump on the the momentum that they're having in their genuine faith and add to it. He wants them to continue growing. Let me just ask yourself, what's the first step in discipleship when you become convinced of a Christian's genuine rebirth What's your first step with them? It's going to be the same thing that Paul does in chapter 4, verse 1, is to now tell them to walk in a way that pleases God, to figure out his will and to live it out in every single area of your life. You know, the Bible, it tells us to live a certain way. And it's not just that we should live that way because it's right. It is. It's because that's the way the Spirit of God inside of us wants to live. We just get in the way of that. And so we do this by faith. This is how we work out the rest of our life through faith. Faith, after all, is just belief. It's real belief. It's not just believing that God exists or that Christ walked this earth. Even the demons believe that and they shudder, right? Christian faith is believing that God's word is true, that it's good for us to follow, that following God's word actually pleases him and then doing that daily. Now, one of the best ways to see our faith lived out is through our love. James tells us that faith without works is dead, and that works is love. No Christian comes to faith and doesn't love, right? It's an understanding of love in the first place that is uh, the gospel that saves us, right? We understand the gospel, which is an object lesson in love, and we become a Christian, right? So we have to understand love in order to be a Christian, Romans 5, 5 tells us of this, um, that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So God's Spirit poured into our hearts. Now there must be evidence of that love. I'm, I'm saying there must be, there has to be. When my kids tell me they have brushed their teeth, there's one way to find out. Go see if the toothbrush is wet, right? There's evidence of them brushing their teeth that has to be wet. If it's dry, there's no way they could have done it. In the same way, in the life of every single believer, there has to be love. There has to be. Thomas Watson, again, he says of love and faith, love discovers the soundness of the faith. It discovers it. It exposes it as the ever beating of the pulse shows the healthy state of the body. Now, here's the problem. If if there is a problem, it's, it's that with conversion comes a change of heart. That's your, your habits change, how you spend your time changes, your money, your attention, 
Things will begin to change for good in your life, your priorities. Fundamentally, you as a human being will begin to look and think differently. You're going to stick out. Like the well witchia plant in the desert, you're going to stick out. And this is a good thing. It's a natural thing for Christians to begin to stick out in the world. But with this increased holiness, this increased Christ-likeness, will come increased attention by the watching world, the outsiders, unbelievers. And it's this attention that Paul is concerned with here in our letter. It's their appearance. If we're walking around saying that we're Christians and that we love the Lord and we're actually becoming, as we'll see, famous for our love in Macedonia, then we need to make sure that we're living up to the standard, standard of God in every other area of our life at least aware of our faults in these areas and desiring to progress in them. Now, if you're the type of person that would say, I know I just, you know, my faith doesn't look good, but my heart, you don't know my heart, it's pure. We do know your heart, everyone does, because it's out of the heart that your behavior comes, out of the heart the mouth speaks. Your love to others and the practice of that tells us about your faith. Your daily habits, it tells us about your self-control and your discipline. And your conversations and how you strategically work through life tells us about what you believe with regards to evangelism. So in all these things, faith, love, discipline, evangelism, we should be progressing. But be encouraged because today we're going to have a lot of hope, a lot of grace, and a lot of help through this letter. So let's read the text, and then we'll dig in. So chapter 4, verse 9 through 12, short text. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So the main idea of today's text is that in order to walk in a way that pleases God, you must let your faith work its way down into every area of your life. The title, The Christian Under a Microscope, it sort of has two meanings. You put a Christian under a microscope and you'll find under the surface all of these things, faith, love, discipline, evangelism, but also it's a reminder that God sees all. He knows all and he demands all. Right? The end of the chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, to be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect, Jesus teaching them. Perfection is the direction that he is taking every single one of us, and we can't resist that. You know, every thought, every deed, everything captive to Christ is where we need to be progressing. So we're going to see this in three areas. Uh, three points is genuine faith produces love, it produces discipline, and it produces evangelism. Now, in all of this, faith is the first domino, if you can imagine, you know, dominoes, but love is always right there with it. You don't live disciplined in godliness without love for the Lord. 
You don't progress in evangelism without love for others, right? So faith and love, they're always right there with it. Our first point, genuine faith produces love. This is verse nine through the first part of verse 10. It says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So Paul is changing the subjects or the subject here from the topic of moral purity and the negative form that we saw last week with Pastor Bo or with Bo. And now he's changing it to brotherly love, right? So some, something not to do to now something to do. A way not to treat your brothers, a way to treat your brothers. It's a put-off, put-on principle that we see all throughout Scripture. Now, this whole section at first, from 9 to 12, it may uh, be a little difficult at first to see how they're related, all these texts. It may seem like different thoughts, but this is actually one complete thought. We'll see that by the end, Lord willing. So... He starts this whole section in chapter 3, verse 11. Remember when he transitions from wanting to supply what is lacking in their faith to now he's supplying it, right? He's doing it through his words, although he wishes he could be there in person. So he prays from verses 11 to 13 that they would abound in love for one another. And then in 4.1, he urges them to walk the way that they had received from him, basically, hey, I instructed you how to walk, how to live out your faith, so keep doing that, just as you are doing more and more. And then in 4.3, he says, don't be sexually immoral like everyone around you in the city, but do continue now growing in brotherly love, and let that love work its way down into your everyday life, right? Be quiet, be peaceful, mind your own business, work hard, don't be idle, essentially, And all this is connected with how their faith is penetrating into the rest of their life. So let's look at brotherly love. He says, concerning brotherly love, that's what obviously his topic is about, is brotherly love in the Greek. You know the Greek word. What is it? It's not agape. It's Philadelphia, brotherly city of brotherly love. There's like four different loves in the Greek. Philadelphia is... Um, the NASB calls it love for the brethren, right? It's used sparingly in the New Testament, Hebrews 13, 1, 1 Peter 1, 22. It's defined as the brotherly love, as a special love that Christians bear toward one another as a fellow member of the family of faith. They're conscious of having the same father in heaven. That's John Eady, a Bible commentator. Now, brotherly love is good, it's natural, it's, it's what you're going to feel for one another when you've all come in the same family of God. But it's fueled by the love of Christ, the agape love, a stronger love that fuels this love. And Paul mentions that love when he says to love one another at the end of that verse, right? So we got two types of love here, but they're, they're very connected. He's just saying your brotherly love that is working out towards your brothers and sisters in Christ is fueled by your agape love, your, the love that compels you, 2 Corinthians five fourteen. But about this brotherly love, he says you have no need for anyone to write to you. In other words, he's saying, I see this in you. I know you get it. But I'm not going to overstate it, right? But I'm still going to remind you and encourage you about it because I don't want you to think it's not important. I don't want you to think that you shouldn't keep abounding in it. So I'm going to mention it, but not mention it in the way that he does. 
Remember, this church is very young, less than a year old, just a few months old. But they're already excelling in love. It's obvious to Paul, to Timothy, to the rest of the world that they're Christians because they love. It's obvious. It's widespread. They're famous for it, as we should all be. So just three things about this love before we move forward. The first thing is that love is a testing fruit of regeneration. And I've said that already, but I just want to make it clear. Love is a testing fruit of regeneration. If you do not have love, then you are not in Christ. 1 John 3.14, it says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. 1 John 4.8, anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. It's It's simple. So love is a testing fruit of regeneration. Love is also a token of true discipleship. John 13, 34, Jesus tells his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So love is a token of true discipleship. And lastly, it's an, it is essential to the spiritual growth of the church. Ephesians 4.16 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So we must have love in our congregation in order to continue growing together to be more like Christ. Now, that being said, true Christians and true churches, they don't need a lesson on love. We don't have to go sit in a Sunday school class about love and the, the makeup of it and the DNA of it. They just need a reminder. They need to fight sin. They need to get out of the way of themselves. They need to get out of the way of the Holy Spirit. You know, Matthew talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, taking the basket off of the lamp so it can shine. They need to open up their eyes to their needs of those around them, to get their eyes off of themselves. In order for our love, church, to be prevalent, we just got to get out of the way. We have to remove the obstacles and the sins that are in, in us and around us that get in the way of this love. Now, don't get me wrong, that's not easy to do. It's actually very difficult if you think about farming, the, the hardest part of farming is preparing to farm. Like putting the seed in the ground is actually pretty easy. It's the tilling, the removing of the rocks. It's, it's preparing the soil. That's the difficult part of farming. And so we still have been called to that. The impossible part of farming is done by God. And the impossible part of our Christian life is done by God. And that's growth, right? How in the world does a plant grow out of a seed? Um, I'm sure some people know. I don't know. It's a miracle. And our sanctification is a miracle. But we still have work to do in it. The second hardest thing in farming is the harvest, right? And so that's another thing you're going to be invited into by the grace of God is to harvesting this fruit. And this is what Paul's doing in our letter. And so he says that you don't need to be written to about brotherly love because you yourselves have been taught by God. Now, this phrase, taught by God, it's the only place in the New Testament that it's been used, and it's actually God taught. It's one word. 
Uh, it's an adjective. It's not a verb with a noun. It's describing not an event, but it's, a, it's describing a believer. It's, it's almost like saying you're an alumni of you know, such and such university. The Greek really denotes it here. I think the ESV gets it wrong. It's not you have been taught by God as if it was an event that happened before, like a classroom setting, but it's you are taught by God. You are God taught, right? It's part of your identity as a believer. You're God taught. Look at John 6. Just flip back with me to John chapter 6, verse 44. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It's written in the prophets. It's written in Isaiah 54, 13. And they will be all taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. So this is describing conversion, being saved, born again, being God taught. And that's what he's saying. You don't need to be written to about this because you're a Christian. Now, what was the result of them becoming a Christian, being God taught? Well, it was that they loved one another. So as a result of their regeneration, of hearing the Father's calling, of learning from him and being brought to Christ, the result of this was knowing how to love. They had seen it in Christ's example, and I don't mean, mean with their own eyes because they weren't around when Christ walked this earth, but they saw it in the example of the gospel. In order to be a Christian, you have to understand love. I mean, Christ left perfect fellowship with the Father to come to a sinful, fallen, broken world. Out of, for what reason? For love, to save people. He left it, he left that perfect fellowship to live in a time when, I mean, the world wasn't pretty, right? He could have came when there was air conditioning, but he decided to come in first century. He loved Three years of ministry with men who were difficult to love. They were hard of hearing. They were proud. One betrayed him and sent him to his death. All this by love. He suffered and died on the cross by the same men that he came to save. And then three days later rose from the grave, not in wrath and anger to destroy, but forgiveness and love. All of this was the perfect object lesson in love. And so if you've become a Christian, you've been taught by God how to love because we see it in Christ. So that's the, the proof of their being God taught or their regeneration is its love, but also not that it's there, but in its prevalence, right? It's widespread. It's throughout the country. He says, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And I just wanted to encourage you at this time, this is what was on my heart when I was studying this, is just, is our church loving? Do, do we have love? Do we have evidence of this brotherly love? Is it widespread like Paul's writing about? And so I just sat down and thought, and I filled up a yellow pad, not, a, not the whole thing, just a page. I could have kept going. But some examples that I've seen about people in our church that love, people who pick up children's ministry shift. You don't do that just to serve. You do that because you love. You love Christine who asked you for it. And you don't really want to maybe sometimes, but you're like, I love Christine, so I'm going to do it. Same thing with Miss Jan. When she asked me to serve for music, it's like, well, I'm not going to tell Miss Jan no. I love her. Someone wrote an anonymous $4,000 check so we could change out all the lights in our building to LED. Do they love lights? No, they love the guy that asked them about it. And so they wrote the check. 
Sam and Chad doing their doctrinal programs. It's not because they love pain. <laughs> they love their family, although they're not going to be able to see them much over the next three years. It's because they love you all. They love your faces. That's who they're thinking of when they go through these things. I know a guy who's actually allergic to grass, and he went out and bought a whole bunch of lawn equipment so he could mow the, the lawn for us, and we wouldn't have to pay a service, because he loves us. He loves individuals in this church, not because he loves grass. And I seriously could go on and on about the love that I've seen in this church, how prevalent it is. So the Thessalonians' love is prevalent, just like your love. It's widespread, it's extensive, and it's really permeating into their daily lives. And it's this genuine love that Paul is so encouraged about that he sees and knows that it points to their genuine faith. But he doesn't stop there. That's not enough. He isn't satisfied because genuine faith that produces love, it also produces discipline. And that's what he's calling them to the next point. Genuine faith produces discipline. He says, but we urge you, brothers, although this, you're famous for your love, it's amazing, everyone's hearing about it, do this more and more. He says, but we urge, and this brings us back to 4.1, where he says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, do so more and more. So in general, he wants them to walk to please God. And now we're dealing with the specifics of that. What does that look like, Paul? Well, growing in brotherly love, growing in it. It's already there. Now you need to grow in it. And diligently seeking to increase in your faith in all area of your life. Your love is not enough. Now, if you want to hear more about this as I move on, you can go back and listen to Pastor Sam's sermon called A Diligent Church, and that's going through um, chapter four, one through two. So he says, we urge you brothers to do this more and more. There's a persistence on us. Now, how you respond to this persistence on you is a good test of your what I like to call a gospel IQ. I don't call it that often, really just came up with it for this, but basically are you overburdened by a call to increase more and more, by this call to persist in Christ, persist in the gospel, grow in brotherly love? It's never enough. How well do you understand the gospel, right? Is it just a head level, Jesus died for my sins, and so I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm going to go to church for the rest of my life, but I'm going to pour all my energy into this over here. And that's good enough. And anyone who says differently, I don't like them. So that's the head level. But the heart level, turn to Titus, just a few books to the right. Titus chapter 3. And we're going to read a heart level understanding of the gospel Chapter 3, verse 3, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy 
by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to do what? To devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. A few things to point out in this text. Number one, the gospel begins with our own sinfulness in this text. We're foolish, disobedient, led astray. We're full of malice and envy. We hate other people. We're hated by people. And all this doesn't just fall away right away when we come to Christ. I mean, we've been forgiven of it and washed, washed clean from it. There's no penalty of it anymore, but it still kind of hangs around us, right? And so our sinfulness is still there. But next comes the goodness and loving kindness of Jesus Christ. This is what fuels the gospel. It's him. It's his love. It's nothing that we have done, not our works of righteousness, as if we had any, but it's according to God's mercy. The third thing we see is that our salvation required our regeneration, it says. This is a radical change. The word regeneration literally is the production of a new life. And in our context, in every context in the Bible, it's a production of a new life consecrated to God, for God. Not just so you can feel better about yourself and go on living the way you want to live. It's you're, you belong to God now, not to yourself. So it's through this regeneration and also through renewal. We read Romans 12.2 earlier. It tells us to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Same word. So this is through the Holy Spirit. Right? This is our sanctification. This is the growing more and more in love with God and more and more in love with others. This is our leaves like the well witchia plant shooting out from the heart of God, always increasing, always abounding more and more until the day that we go to sleep. This is us uprooting the weeds and sin in our lives, making way for the gospel to grow and to continue to produce fruit. So that's our salvation. It required our regeneration. And then fourthly, we see that we're justified now so that we might become. This is the future tense. It's not ours yet, although it's ours in the sense of an inheritance, but how do we ensure that it's ours? How do we ensure that we'll have heaven, that we'll have Christ forever? We hang on to God as he hangs on to you. And the way that you hang on is through good works, through working your faith out, through watching it grow. So that's our justification. And then he moves on to number five. After we believe, what do we do? It says we devote our lives to good works, to love, to faith, to the church, to service. We devote our lives to that. Why do we do this? One, because it's God's will for us. But two, because they're excellent and profitable. Like if, I don't know, Elon Musk came to you and said, hey, man, I got a business idea. It's going to be excellent and profitable and ethical. You're going to be all in, right? You see Elon Musk, he's going to you know, turn it into gold. These things are excellent and profitable. This is what we should spend our time doing. So that's what it means to believe the gospel on a heart level. That's what it means to not be overburdened by this call to persist in Christ, in faith, 
and love and good works, if you feel like it's never enough, then you need to go back to this text. You need to understand truly what the gospel is, what the Lord is producing in you through his Holy Spirit because he loves you. So keep running, keep striving. Know that nothing that you do in the Lord is in vain. Jesus, Jesus was not lying when he said, my burden is light, my yoke is easy. Right? He is producing the work. He's the vine. You're the branch. Just remain. But I think a lot of us, because the Christian life doesn't feel light, the burden feels heavy, we change up what that means. We just remove the standard. We remove the need to become holy and say, now it's light. Now I feel good about this. But that's you getting it wrong. The standard is perfection. So your faith, your genuine faith, produces love. It also must produce discipline in your life. We know that the Thessalonians grow in this after Paul requests it, commands it actually, because in the second letter to the church, he says it's still growing. Praise God. So part of this faith he shows us is not only growing in quality, but also letting it work its way down into every area of your life. And that's what we're going to look at, these three areas that he shares with them. He wants them to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So he's moving into this area of their life that's a little more specific, a little ambiguous uh, for our purposes. Uh, Maybe it's more routine for them. Uh, It's definitely a correction because um, we see this one that it says they've already instructed them in this. He has a much stronger rebuke of them in, at the end of the second letter to the church. And so we know he's correcting them. We don't know if it's a specific group in the church. Maybe it's the whole church. Probably not. It's also most likely in the context of the teaching that's coming, which is the end times. And so some say that basically they're so anxious about the coming of Christ that they just stopped doing everything else. They've just laid off um, their workers. They've stopped going to work and um, because they're so anticipating the coming of Christ. Now, we don't live like that, but just think of hurricane season, right? When a hurricane comes, I mean, your world is shut down, right? Lights are off and you're just being idle and it's so boring, right? So what do you start doing? This is kind of what's happening here, I expect. Now, we know that he would, um, he, would, he would command them in this because the apostles worked among them, right? They were examples of working hard, of minding their own business, of living quiet and peaceably, except when they were persecuted, of course. And so ultimately, what he's doing here is he's just generally, he's calling them to walk in wisdom and discipline in every area of their life. They're needing to let this faith they have that is genuine and it's growing to permeate into the rest of their lives, these daily routine things. Now, these people, they're, they're new believers. They love the Lord, but their leader is gone and they're anxious about the coming of Christ. So this leads them to be a, a bit frenzied, anxious maybe, They've stopped working, so they're idle. So what do they do with their time? Well, they're running around being busybodies. They're not minding their own business. They're probably gossiping. And they're probably living on the dime of some rich guy in the church. He's probably allowing them to do all this, which is why they don't have to work. Now, this looks bad. This looks bad to Paul. It looks bad to the rest of the world, too. And that's precisely what he's concerned about here. If their faith isn't permeating into their discipline 
then they're not going to continue to mature and make disciples. They're not going to be a good witness to the watching world. And so he tells them, aspire. Number one, aspire to live quietly. In the Greek, this is, it's almost like an oxymoron. I mean, he does it on purpose, right? It's like a hurry up and slow down is what he's saying. Be very ambitious. That's what aspire means about being peaceful. Be very ambitious about living quietly. Don't be so frantic and anxious. Have a quiet spirit that gets along with all men. Be at peace. Be calm. No drama. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So kids, when your parents tell you this, it's, it's biblical. Live peaceably with your siblings. It would help us. This exhibits faith and confidence in the Lord, though, when you can live this way. It's a great witness to the watching world. If I step into a church, any church, and I see first and foremost a church of people that love the Lord and love each other, and it's evident, that's great. But then if I look closer and I see that they're disproportionately consumed with other things, politics, Israel, prophecy, homeschooling even, which is a great thing we're involved in, but if that becomes the main thing within a church, even race and social justice issues, when those become the main thing, out of proportion with how the Bible treats it and talks about it, then we're in trouble. That doesn't mean that we should neglect by any means our civic duty, our personal responsibilities to be a part of all of those good things. That's exactly what Paul's getting at, actually. This whole world's going to burn up. Jesus is going to come back, and anything that you do not for the Lord won't matter at all. In fact, it'll count against you. But keep doing it. Keep doing the good things anyway. I mean, it's Ecclesiastes. right? Solomon, he says, everything is vanity. You know, if I'm over here living for the Lord, I'm just going to die, and this person over there doesn't care about the Lord. He's going to die. What's the point? And that's what he's longing for. Give me a purpose to live. But he comes to the realization in the end, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The point is that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. And that's a beautiful thing about becoming a Christian. And it takes faith to believe that. Going back to the Wellwitchia plant, in order for you to be able to have this selective attention and not care so much about what's going on in the world, to ignore to an extent some of these peripheral issues that you don't you know, live or die on, and to focus more on your faith and on growing in holiness, is because God's word is sufficient for your daily life. You can trust the proportion that which God talks about things in the Bible. You can trust how effective it's going to be to allow you to live a godly life. And you can trust that that will satisfy you, as we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Luke 19 uh, if you want to turn there, you can, or I'm just going to speak to it because i got to move here. But Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable, and he says why he tells it. He says, I told, or he, he spoke a parable because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. All right, so that's kind of what these Thessalonians are feeling right now. Christ's going to come back 
And Jesus taught about this, right? So I'm sure Paul instructed them on this. He starts off by saying a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. That's Jesus leaving and he's gonna return with the kingdom and then return. He gave 10 of his servants, 10 minas and told them to engage in business until I come, until I come back, engage in business. And I could stop right there. But he goes on when he returns, he judges all of his servants. He said, how'd you guys do with the 10 minus, right? Some of them did well, and he said, well done. And some of them did nothing because they were so afraid of him. And he said, not good, right? He judged them, he cast them out. He took everything they had from them and gave it to those who had. The point is Jesus wants us to continue in faithful activity in all areas of our life until he returns. And he says that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Whatever he's given you in your life, be faithful with it as unto the Lord. And you will get more and more and more to be faithful with. The point is always faithfulness, not success or worldly renown. So that's what he's telling them to do, to live quiet lives, to be ambitious about living quietly. And secondly, to mind your own affairs. Literally, mind your own business is what he said. Don't go around getting into everyone else's business because you're bored, because you're not working. Our equivalent to this, because this you know, written 2,000 years ago, so much different culture, uh, but our equivalent to this is the exact same thing. Right? We're, we want to know what everyone else is doing. Right? We don't mind our own business. And a lot of it comes from not being engaged in the Lord's work, not being engaged in our own work. Right? Social media, great example. The reason I'm off social media is because I don't have the discipline to control every single thought that comes in my mind. Judgment, lustful, anger, comparing, you, you name it. These all comes up, come up because of scrolling. And so I just decided to get rid of it. <laughs> that's, that's just of me. That's not of the Lord. <laughs> but he's warning them against being idle and becoming a busybody because of it. They don't have anything to do. And so they just get involved in everyone else's business. So think of this, though, in the context of the watching world, right? You're a Christian. You're full of zeal brotherly love. And in the name of Jesus, you run around trying to do the Lord's work, but you just get entangled in civilian affairs, right? You're trying to get the scoop on everybody. You start spreading gossip about everyone and, and you're, you're seen as this person. Well, what outsider wants to be part of that community when they feel like they're just going to be the object of that same gossip or attention, you know, we do this, we, we get in other people's business because there is a novelty in knowing things, right? We just, maybe you find yourself going to the news or email or social media first thing in the morning, right? You, what did you miss out on, right? You just want to know. It's just an innate thing. And of us, we want to know. When that takes us away, though, from godliness is when we should be concerned. Now, what if, in some areas, you're the last to know information, what if you're surprised by things people tell you and you're able to be not indifferent necessarily, but unconcerned and still full of faith in the Lord that he's on his throne and that he's sovereign and things are going to go well for, for all who follow his ways? That's going to be a much more powerful witness uh, to God and his church than being anxious about every little news article that comes out. 
So mind your own business. It's biblical. But next and lastly, he says, work with your hands. The emphasis here is not as much on hands as like manual labor, although there was certainly a sense in this culture to despise manual labor, right? They viewed that as the slave class would do the labor, but God doesn't despise labor. He created work. Jesus was a carpenter. David was a shepherd. The apostles and the um, disciples were tent makers and fishermen. God loves work, and so we should love work. He makes work. It fixes so many of our problems. We should work six days and rest one day. And if you find that you need rest from your rest, maybe you need to change how your rest is, right? So he, he says it for that reason, but also you know, bringing it back to brotherly love, he doesn't want these Thessalonians to become a burden on their local assembly. If none of them are working, who's footing the bill? Who's paying for all the food? Maybe it's one guy that's paying for all their food, and now that guy doesn't have any money to give to other places, right? So don't be a burden on your church family. Don't be a burden on the government. In other words, be a, a means of a blessing. Move away from your state of dependency to be a blessing to other people. Now, if you're in need, that's obviously okay for a season, but there should be a desire to grow and to work out of that so you can become a blessing. Orphans, widows, disabled, the church, we have you. We got you. But even Paul guards against this. In First, in first Timothy, he puts a qualification on the widows. Hey, make sure they're of age. Make sure they led a good orderly life and they worked hard in the workforce before they get on this role that he was creating for them. So he, there's a sense of merit in his mind of who gets to eat, essentially. In Second Thessalonians, he, he tells them in this same context of correction, those who don't work don't get to eat. And he says all this in the context of com, a commandment. He says, as we instructed you. And the word here is commanded you. Paul's serious about this. It's the only time he uses this word in this letter, and he uses it three times in 2 Thessalonians because they're not getting it, right? He's instructed them when he was there. He's writing them now. He hears about them for the second letter, and they're still not getting it, so he's stronger in his language there. Now, he loves this church. He's rejoicing over them, their faith, their love, but he knows that they have to continue growing in their genuine faith and letting it permeate into their discipline in order to be a good witness. That's what he's concerned about. And that's our last point. Genuine faith produces evangelism. He says, why do you live this way? Why do you live quietly and mind your own, mind your own affairs and work with your hands? It's so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, to walk is to behave. That's what's in, in view here, their behavior. Remember, 4.1 is, he says, how you ought to walk. He's bookending it now. Like, this is the walking section, right? Just makes me think of Psalm 1, the blessed man and how he walks, right? Not in the way of the wicked or the, way the, or the counsel of the, the sinner, but he walks loving the Lord, loving his law. And that's what's in view here, their behavior. So he wants them to walk properly before outsiders. And really what this means to walk properly is to win their respect, right? The outsiders should look at them and 
Think of them as respectful people. They may be a little weird because of what they believe, but they're still respectful people in all of their dealings. So how do we do this? Well, you may win the respect of the outside world by just being above reproach in all your dealings, right? Even if someone else in the business world is taking advantage of you and they know you're being above reproach, you're still going to win their respect, even though they may be, you know, taking advantage of you for a time. Your witness still speaks very loudly to them. You may win their respect, the outsider's respect, by not being overly concerned by those things we spoke of earlier, politics or even social media, whatever's the newest article, the health crazes that come and go. You're not that concerned about it. You may win people's respect for not caring as much. Uh, you will win their respect in how you handle persecution and other people hating you and how... Um, maybe the government's dealing with Christians around the world. You may win the respect in how you pass up a promotion or a job offer because you want to spend more time with family or serving your church. There's a million ways you can walk properly and win the respect of outsiders, and that's really the point. You got to be careful how you do it. Ephesians 5 says not to walk as unwise, but as wise. You have to discern what is the will of the, will of the Lord. You have to sit down. It takes thoughtful consideration thinking about it. you got to use your brain. Love comes naturally. Everyone knows how to do it. But being disciplined in the rest of our lives takes this thoughtful consideration. And so Paul's concerned about this because he loves his church. He loves their faith. He knows it's genuine. He knows they're going to keep growing, but he still has to say these things. But he wants them to have an impact on the rest of the world. And they already are in love. Just as Paul was an example to them, these are some things that he taught them. He was an example to them in holiness. He was an example to them in his work ethic as he worked night and day so that he could provide the gospel free of charge to them. He was an example in how he discipled them. Chapter 2 deals with all the marks of his discipleship. He's an example in his letters through his prayerfulness and how he's constantly in prayer for them. And in the same way, he wants them to be an example to the watching world in all of these areas. And it's we as pastors here, this is what we want for you. We want you to be an example in all of these things. And this is going to take allowing faith and love and discipline and evangelism to continue to grow in each of you. These things are excellent and profitable for you. He closes this section by saying to be dependent on no one. Walk properly before, outs before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now the no one he has in mind here is most likely outsiders, although he doesn't necessarily want them to be dependent on the insiders of the community either. You're just not going to win many people to Christ by being needy, right? People like to keep their distance from very needy people when they can tell that they can do otherwise with their lives because they just don't want to be sucked dry, right? We all always get that sense of the moocher and we want to keep our distance from them. Now, that's not uh, speaking to the sick or the struggling or maybe you made a bad decision in business and you're broke. We can struggle with those people. We all should struggle with one another. But don't be surprised when you get some advice on maybe how you could live a little more disciplined in your finances. Now, he doesn't want anyone in the church being dependent on the insiders, the outsiders. Uh, if you are going to be dependent, let it be the church first right? But all of this is so that his church will look good to the 
outside world so they'll be a good witness for Christ. So just to wrap all this up, Field Church, we need to be a community full of brotherly love because of our faith. Our genuine faith needs to continue abounding in brotherly love. But we also need to be a church full of discipline in all of our daily lives, full of evangelism. Our conversations need to be geared toward and even strategic about how can we attempt to win this person for Christ. All of this is a result of our faith. So just ask yourself, where are you living unfaithfully? There's, there's one area in your life where you're being unfaithful. I'm sure of it because none of us are perfect. So where is that area for you? And what does the world think about your life? What does your daily habits reveal about your faith? And when's the last time someone asked you about the hope that is within you? Even if it is because they think you're weird. I mean, you know, I'll take that, right? Tertullian, I'm going to close with this story. He wrote in uh, the second century, he was a North Africa Christian, and he wrote to the Roman authorities because at this time the Christian church was, they were getting persecuted, they were getting um, killed, they were being martyred. And so he wrote to the Roman authorities to plead for justice. He's like, these guys aren't that bad. We aren't that bad. You want us in your community, basically. And so he wrote a 35,000 word essay to try and convince them. The sermon today I'm preaching to you is probably about 5,000 words. So he had a lot to say about this. It's a book. Now, these are just some of the things he said. He said, we are a body knit together as such by a common religious profession, by unity of discipline and by the bond of a common hope. We pray for the emperors, for the ministers, not the religious ministers, but the gover governmental ministers. We pray for authority for peace, for welfare. Even though you guys are hating us and killing us, we're praying for you. You want us in your community. Stop killing us, please. He goes on to talk about how they're nourished by the word, how they practice church discipline to unruly members, how they even excommunicate the unrepentant. Right? This looks good to a government that cares about order and discipline. He says on the monthly day, he's talking about their giving, if he like, each puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure and only if he be able. For there is no compulsions, all is voluntary. But it is mainly, he says, the deeds of love, so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us, meaning hate us. See, they say, how they love one another, for themselves are animated by mutual hatred, how they are even ready to die for one another, for they themselves will sooner be put to death. The main thing that stuck out to the Christian communities, to the Romans around them that were persecuting them, is their love. And as Christians, we should all, all together, look different. We should stick out to a world around us. That means living for a world that we cannot see by faith. And we do that with a discipline, with a love, with a faith that's unmatched by the world because they don't have the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for these things. We know we have a lot of work to do, um, but it's by your grace and by your spirit uh, that we continue, that we persevere. And so I pray first for our desires. I pray that you would um, grow our desire for you, to love you, to glorify you, to bring you honor. 
I pray that you would grow our desire to, to grow in holiness um, and godliness, that you would reveal the sin, the obstacles, all the things that lie in the way um, of, of the direction you're taking us, and that you would cause us by your spirit to uh, be sanctified in these things. Uh, Lord, we can only do these things by your grace and your spirit, and, and we love you and we thank you that you are so gracious to us as individuals and even as the field church. And we pray that you would continue this work in us uh, for your glory, Lord. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.